Welcome back to Phage Therapy Today. I'm your host, Stephen Young. Now we know for phage therapy to work, we need to find the right phage. But the specificity of phages to bacteria species or even bacteria strains have made it a bit challenging to isolate just the right phages. So from a certain perspective, it is a numbers game. And today's guest is going to answer two questions for us. How do you solve this problem and how he can make it a fun process for everyone? It's our pleasure to have Dr. Ben Temberton on the show with us today. Coming from a very solid computer science background originally, he then got his PhD in microbiology from Queen's University Belfast, where he went on for his postdoc in Stephen Giovinani's group at Oregon State. After that, he'd headed back to England, and since 2015, he's currently professor of microbiology at University of Exeter. Welcome to the show, Ben, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, but I, I hope I did your justice here in this very brief intro, but I, I kind of left out the most important thing here I want to talk to you about, which is Ben is also the founder and the lead science a scientist of the Citizen Phage Library. So, you know, make sure we definitely get back to uh, to, to this <laughs> most important topic. But, you know, you, you got such a fascinating background here, and I, I just really want to learn more about, you know, how this experience, especially you come from a really solid computer science background and how you got from there into microbiology and how does this strong background fit into the picture here? Okay, so I guess I'm the the poster child of someone who did not know what they wanted to do when they when they grew up. So I, I started off at university doing a, a law degree and then was the first person to switch from law to chemistry uh, during my undergrad. So I got a chemistry degree um, around the time where this was kind of the dot-com boom was was happening at the early turn of the century. And all my friends were going into, into software engineering and earning uh, a whole load of money. And I thought, do I really want to uh, be involved in, in chemistry after studying it? So I actually switched. I did a, a master's in software engineering and then spent seven years in, in IT. Um, and we I worked for various companies during the kind of the dot-com boom. We designed the website for the band, The Prodigy, and uh, and some really cool cool stuff. Then I think we were one of the first people to where you could upload a picture to the internet and have it printed on a T-shirt. That was kind of the uh, you know kind of the, the wild west days of early early web development. And then I really uh, I, I got more involved in kind of I guess structural side of of data and the use of sort of data for things like the, the National Health Service and pension, you know, managing pension software. And it, it got to the point where lots of projects I would on, they would run and they would uh, basically have these crazy deadlines to deliver where, you know, you were working 60, 70 hour weeks to hit these deadlines. And then you deliver the software to the client and then they'd turn around and say, well, that's great, except we've now changed our business practice. So, so we don't need that software after all. And it got to the point where I thought, I'm going to die and nothing I've written is ever going to have ever been in use anywhere. Um, so I decided at that point that maybe it was time to retrain and, and go back to what I really wanted to do when I was a child. And that was be a marine, a marine biologist. So I, I essentially gave up my career in, in IT and then went and retrained as a, as a marine biologist, do, did another degree at um, University of Plymouth. And then during that time, the PhD was offered to me. Um, it was basically an opportunity to do a PhD at Queen's University Belfast. And because I already had the, the degree from uh, in the chemistry, 
uh, I basically swapped straight from the from the I think the second year undergrad of my of my marine biology degree to a, to do a PhD at, at Queen's. So um, so yeah, so then I I basically did that and uh, and hadn't really really looked back. I was quite fortunate that um, all of my IT skills and being able to kind of use sort of high throughput computing kind of was just about the time when people started to do a lot of kind of 16s analysis of communities and and kind of getting these kind of big initial well, on 454 metagenomic data sequencing coming back and didn't really have, not many people had the skills to kind of analyze that. So I could I could utilize the skills I'd learned in, in IT for kind of doing these big big kind of programming and, and making pipelines and, and designing these things to uh, to be of use to, to the microbial uh, ecology people. So so that's really how, how my career kind of started and how I made the switch. Right, great. And so as part of your current research, still focus on marine biology and using that big data metagenomics analysis part? Yeah, so um, probably about half of my team is still working on kind of um, the fundamental research in terms of how bacteria and viruses interact in the oceans to shape uh, carbon biogeochemistry. So uh, we've been funded by the uh, Simmons Foundation for uh, I think about eight years now working out of the, um, the Sargasso Sea as part of the Bioscope Consortium. And so every year we uh, get a cruise out into the off the coast of Bermuda and 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 sample the water and then look at the the bacteria and the viral communities at depth and how they're changing and how that relates to metabolites and stuff that are uh, that are being produced there. So yeah, all all big data and all kind of metagenomic style uh, style analyses and some lab works. We do quite a bit of culturing of the bacteria out there, but, uh, but yeah. So that's my kind of environmental hat that I that I still wear um, these days. Yeah, that's really awesome. Okay, so now let's shift back to the topic we're really we're really interested in, which is about the Citizen Phage Library project. So tell us about it. What's this? What is this project, and what was the drive and goal? So what we go for this. Yeah. So basically, up up until the beginning of COVID nineteen, uh, all of my research had been pretty much focused on marine marine microbiology, and we had developed good techniques in my lab. Of, one of my PhD students, particularly Joe Warwick Dugdale, had managed to develop methods of sequencing uh, viruses in the marine environment on the minion sequencer from from Oxford nanopore. So we were well known in that community for kind of being good at Oxford nanopore sequencing and kind of long read analysis. And then when COVID-19 hit, uh, a guy called Nick Lohman uh, in the UK who had previously used Oxford nanopore sequencing to, to monitor um, Ebola and Zika outbreaks in, in real time, uh, basically started to, to put into place a consortium for doing that similar kind of analysis uh, for COVID-19 in the, in the UK. And that became uh, the COG UK uh, group. that was basically a consortium, I think around 20 different institutions to, um, to monitor the, the um, development of an Kind of evolution of novel strains of uh, of COVID nineteen as they appeared in the UK in real time. So because we were kind of a safe pair of hands for for minion sequencing, we were basically invited to to join that group. And I actually ended up heading the uh, along with Steve Mitchell heading the kind of southwest hub uh, of the UK for that kind of sequencing. So dealing with hospitals and and getting all their samples in. And it was really through that process that I got to engage on a daily basis with respiratory clinicians and and kind of you know healthcare workers in a way that I hadn't ever 
previously and i realized two things really the first it was became abundantly or, or became clear very early on that actually with covid-19 we were relatively lucky in the sense that uh, infections of covid-19 tend not to produce secondary bacterial infections the rate of secondary bacterial infections is actually pretty low for for covid-19 people so you think if something similar had hit whereby secondary bacterial infections have been commonplace globally around the world with the antimicrobial resistance crisis uh, that we're currently facing that would have been a major major far bigger problem than we, that we currently had to had to face and it would have been something we've been dealing with for, for really long term because of obviously that would have increased the amount of antibiotic resistance that would have come about so so that was the key driver i thought that you know we we absolutely desperately need new tools so that when the next pandemic hits and potentially one that does have antimicrobial resistance uh, you know bacterial infections associated with all the risk of antimicrobial resistance that we have the tools in place to, to do it so maybe we could use our techniques of isolating viruses and sequencing them and, and develop new new therapeutics the other thing that really kind of engaged me was the fact that it was the first time in my life where the research i had done on one particular day had an immediate and direct impact on on society right so in some, some of these hospitals we were sequencing samples in and it turned out that actually uh, we could map the transition of, of COVID-19 from, you know, from the staff to the patients and we could advise them on this and then they could change their uh, their practice, essentially. So the the work in the environment and kind of the whole kind of how viruses and, and bacteria interact and shapes carbon geochemistry is all very, it's very important work, but it's kind of abstract and, and long term, right? You kind of, you, you hope that one day your research will be of value to, to society. Whereas in this particular work, it was immediate and there was direct feedback from from people as to how it was um how useful it was and that i kind of got addicted to that a little bit so i decided at that point that you know it would it would certainly be good for me to start entering into into the kind of clinical clinical world so at that point we essentially uh decided that we were going to set up what was the citizen phage library so the uk currently had uh no immediate capacity for providing phages to to clinicians there's lots and lots of phage research in the uk and lots of labs around do do excellent work and kind of have their own uh independent kind of collections of phages but there wasn't really a kind of main center that people could uh reach out to so i figured the best way of getting that up to speed very quickly was actually to reach out to citizens to try and sample as widely as possible across the across the UK, right? So hopefully, you know, your listeners are aware that phage diversity is absolutely enormous and you can readily sample your environment and find phages that will infect particular bac uh, bacteria as long as you as long as you search hard hard enough and, and, and wide enough. And so we figured the best way of doing that is actually to engage citizens to take samples of, of freshwater and, and kind of soils and these kind of things and then send them back to the lab and then we can enrich those samples for uh, the bacteriophage that infect clinical uh, clinical pathogens and so the first test we did of it was uh, obviously as most science you you take your son out or your family out to, to do kind of sampling and make sure that it works and we literally went just down the road from my house which is maybe five minutes walk to a river called the river lemon 
and took a sample from there and tried to enrich phages that infect Acinetobactobamanii uh, from that water sample. And sure enough, we we got a hit and, you know, we did kind of in vitro killing assays and it showed that this particular phage, you know, killed Acinetobactobamanii stone dead. And so it really showed that you could indeed uh, isolate really clinically useful phages from your from your environment. So then we basically rapidly rolled out um, a kind of a school access program where we go into schools and we talk to kids about antimicrobial resistance and then they all get sample jars and they go home for their homework and collect water samples and then and then bring them back into the lab. Uh, we've done lots of science outreach at kind of, you know, these kind of science festival uh, type events uh, where we give kits out and we normally kind of give a talk about um, antimicrobial resistance and phase therapy uh, in particular. And uh, the ultimate aim is essentially we want to have a website um, where people we have a website already, but where people can actually order these kits online and then and then we will send the kits out to them and the, and then they will do the sampling and send them back. So, so, yeah, that's where we are. We've been doing that for two years now, I think we've been running this this um, program. And I think we're looking at the spreadsheet and the database we have this morning. It's, we've now done around a 525 samples from citizens of have come through our door that we've been processed, and from those we've got just under four hundred phages that we've uh, that we've isolated against. Uh, I think it's Klebsiella, E. coli, uh, Pseudomonas, and Acinetobacterbamanii are our kind of main main focus strains that we that we look at. Oh wow, that's that's really really cool. And so how how easy it is for, for example, for an average uh, maybe a high school student to collect these samples and send it back to you. Oh, it's really easy. So it works. I mean, basically what we give them is a, if you go into a school, uh, we tend to supply, it's basically these 40 mil glass jars uh, that you get from, you know, you often can find kind of small preservative, um, you know, kind of conserves and stuff in them. Um, so we literally just, they, they take a water sample from that and then, and then send them back uh, to us. So we did find in the early days that uh, if, depending on how long the samples had been kind of, sat in people's houses waiting for them to send them back for instance uh the longer that process went on the fewer phages we found in those particular samples and we think what was happening is essentially the phages love to bind to to solid material right so if there's any kind of um sediment in those samples if there's any kind of uh you know living bacteria in those samples that the phages don't happen to infect then actually the phages absorb onto that solid material and then when we kind of spin them down and then filter them to remove the bacteria actually essentially removing most of the phages from those uh, from those samples so we initially started going to schools uh, so that essentially as soon as the kids had taken those samples they would bring them in the next day and then we could get them back to the lab and, and, and isolate phages from them and that works really well we've recently started uh, essentially the version two of our sampling kit which is actually a uh, a syringe with a 0.2 micron filter on it that you can actually immediately sample from the site automatically filter in situ and then cap it and then send the syringe back to us so that there's no particulate matter uh, anymore and that seems to be working quite quite well so we are now at the point where we could actually in theory send kits out from from the website and people could you know keep them in the house for a while without having to worry too much about the the phage dropping in in terms of how many you might isolate it's very easy. Yeah, very nice. easy. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah, so now, now you have this library, uh, you mentioned 500 something pages. And so how, for example, in the long term, and you also mentioned about the quick turnaround of research going into clinical applications, how do you foresee these phages being used in clinical settings? And how do you, you know, ensure the safety of that, the, the amplification of the phages and how like about, about the delivery process? So we have a situation at the moment where we work very closely with the phage directory, who I'm sure your people are, um, your listeners are well aware of, and they issue these calls out to people where they need a phage for a for a particular patient. So typically what happens is we will get a notification from phage directory to say a phage is needed for a pseudomonas infection, let's say. So then we will contact the, um, the clinician or the, the person who initiated the phage request and they will send us the strain uh, of the phage, of the pathogen, sorry. And then the first thing we do is we will screen our existing library of phages uh, against that particular pathogen and see if we get any hits. But the other thing, and I think one of the real strengths of the system phage library is we don't just have uh, a bank of phages, essentially. We also have a bank of samples that, that citizens have sent us. So it's very easy to take a new pathogen and then rather than having to go out into the field and kind of uh, create a new field sampling campaign to try and find phages we can very rapidly screen a library of, of pre-existing samples that, that patients have uh, have sent us and so we can typically turn that around quite quickly so in a recent case um we basically i think we we got the phage in from the hospital and then we we screened over 2000 samples um, from both citizens coming in and from our kind of collaboration with um, the environment agency where we collect wastewater samples from them and within 72 hours we had hundreds of phages that infected the pathogens that they'd uh, they sent us hundreds of plaques i should say um so then the the process from there was you basically pick the the top 20 uh plaques that we think most look like they have strong killing so they're typically the ones that have a really nice kind of glassy clear plaque and they they produce these kind of halos where we think the, the end of license are kind of going into the into the medium pick 20 of those and then we sequence them and then we make sure that essentially they're safe for clinical use in the sense that they don't encode any antimicrobial resistance genes they don't encode any genes associated with a kind of temperate lifestyle they don't encode any toxins and so then we essentially uh, we we analyze the genomes of all of the uh, the bacteriophages that we've that we've sequenced, and we we do kind of uh, all versus all genome clusterings and, and, and put them into clusters, and then essentially try and pick four to six phages that we've isolated that come from different genetic clusters. And the idea is that if you could then make a cocktail of them, if they're in different genomic clusters, they're quite likely to attack the bacteria in in different ways. And so therefore the bacteria will have to evolve resistance to two threats at once, essentially. So, so we can kind of use that sequencing data to start tailoring what would go into those, into those cocktails. And we have, we have other tests that we, um, we go into a Galeria uh, waxworm model uh, to test what the, the phages are doing in there and to see if they're actually, you know, causing toxicity in the, in the Galeria. Um, and then ultimately, it's, it's down to purifying those things for for clinical use. But it really it really depends where you are in the world in terms of what how we process those phages. So some phages we've literally just isolated. We've got the plaque and we've shipped it out to the, the people asking it so that they can then do the downstream 
work on it. Other phases we've had, we've shipped out to to Belgium uh, so that they can do the processing because that's what their uh, their pipeline needs. Um, the UK is somewhat limited in its use of how, of, of certainly in its how phages can be used clinically uh, in the UK. Um, as it currently stands, my understanding of the law is they either need to be imported, uh, in which case uh, they come in as an unlicensed special, uh, essentially medicine that hasn't been through a, through a clinical trial. Uh, and it's okay to import them, but if you produce them in the UK, they need to be produced under GMP standards, this good manufacturing practice standard. Uh, and I'm yet to find anyone who can do that for a sensible price in a reasonable time frame right. in the UK. So, so it's absolutely, you know, we are pretty limited on how you can use faders in the UK for for compassionate face therapy right now. Yeah. I feel like that's the limitation a lot of countries are actually facing right now. Yeah. And you, I think you're starting to paint a picture for us uh, in the face therapy field in the UK right now. And you talk about there are different research groups having different, you know, different phage banks, essentially, different small banks. Have done. And how, so how do you, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about the situation you think, like a bigger landscape of the phage therapy in the UK? Maybe how is your company's doing it? How's the government? What's the interrelationship here? You're seeing. Um, so there's definitely it's it's moving at pace in the right direction. That's what I would I would say. So I know uh, Martha Clokey, who's been working on this for years at, at, in, in Leicester, has, has recently been given uh, a significant amount of money by University of Leicester to set up a, a kind of big phage bank uh, at, at Leicester. Uh, there are you know there's obviously us working in it. There are various. Uh, there's a new um, kind of group um, called Phage UK that's kind of working with government and various and clinical groups to try and uh, kind of get the ball rolling and get a kind of, I guess, a, a regulatory structure in place so that uh, clinicians know uh, when they can and when they can't use uh, phage therapy. Because at the moment, it's, you know, the, the same conversations are happening in every hospital when they're faced with a, with a kind of drug resistant bacterial pathogens, right? How do we make this work? Who do we need to talk to? What needs to happen? So uh, kind of a, a document or a, a kind of detailed guidelines of how that might work um, that everyone can then reference would be would be very, very useful indeed. Um, we are absolutely pushing to try and get GMP production of phages working uh, in the UK because that does seem to be a major limitation uh, for their use practically uh, right now. So... Um, I know that Australia, uh, we work closely with the Phage Australia group, and uh, they've obviously been, they've started working very hard on getting their kind of standard operating procedures in place, and they published their stamp protocol recently. And so we're kind of trying to leverage that to um, work with our local hospital about what, what phage therapy might look like in a compassionate use once the regulatory kind of green light comes on uh, that we can actually use them. So, um, yeah, there's lo lots of really good work going on right now in the uk and it seems it's an exciting time to be to be yeah. working in this field definitely and also sounds like in other european countries the the regulation may be less uh a little bit more lenient on the use of phage yeah so certainly in in belgium they've now got this kind of they've agreed this kind of uh 
producing phages that have active pharmaceutical ingredients under a magistral uh, preparation that Jean-Paul Pierne has been, been pushing on very hard and, and, and managed to make very successful there. And so they have this pipeline in place where you can do them. And, and really what I really hope for is that the rest of Europe uh, can kind of adopt that that kind of process. That, that would be the most sensible plan, I think, because it's been shown to work so well in in Belgium. Uh, it would it makes sense for it for everyone else to follow the lead of of that who needs to. Right. And a few details I want to talk about um, in your process. So you mentioned you, you do annotation on phage. Do you develop your own or use some, use some existing like phage, uh, open a, a phage AI, uh, that kind of platform? So we use, uh, we definitely use tools that are already out there. So we typically would, um, we assemble with shovel, um, it's basically a spades um, optimizer uh, that was written. And then we, um, we, we, annotate with Procker, and then we will use tools like uh, there's a cool tool called phage leads that basically leverages the databases like abricate and these kind of things to look for antimicrobial resistance genes and whether a phage has um kind of genes associated with the lysogenic stage um and it will screen for those to determine whether your phage is clinically suitable or not so so yeah our, our pipeline is largely it's one of the things i guess whether the software engineering background comes in uh, quite useful because developing these kind of high throughput pipelines allows us to kind of very rapidly process hundreds of phage genomes at, at any given point. And we are very lucky at Exeter that we have this incredibly good sequencing center right on our on our doorstep. So I can take a, a pot of phage DNA down there and say we need this sequenced in three days uh, because there's a you know there's a patient on the other end of it and uh, and they will turn that round and so we can process the data very very right. quickly right and i've also noticed that different groups uh like like fish culture is not like a new concept it's, it's like pretty well but it seems like different groups the way they organize they put together this cocktails there's always a little bit different aspect different considerations so and uh, i'm i'm particularly interested in like what's I think uh, you talk a little bit about this, but can you go more into detail about it? Yeah, I mean, it's we, we basically, all we do is we screen the phages to determine that they are in different genetic clusters to maximize the likelihood that you're going to be attacking a phage from two different directions, right? So there is actually a reasonably good, there's still a lot of work to be done right now in terms of whether we should be using cocktails or whether we should be using single phages in kind of successional treatments, basically. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So um, we're, we're doing some uh, a collaborator of mine, Remy Chait, has developed these super cool kind of swim assays uh, that you can test combinations of phages in different, um, you know, very rapidly and on, on a plate and then see that, um, see how the, the combination of phages and the phages individually affect the, the bacteria and how much they kill it and what the, re, the mechanisms of resistance that come out uh, of the other side once they kind of swim through this wall of phage. Uh, so we should be publishing on that fairly soon. But yeah, I mean, we, we're we at the point where what we're trying to do, we essentially want to be providing our phages as individual phages and then it essentially it'd be up to the, the pharmacy and, and the clinician involved in that to determine whether they want to add them as cocktails or whether they want to add them add them individually there's certainly a good evidence i think or a good argument to be made at least for um when when you give phages individually they are much easier to track 
in that patient as to how that patient is responding to it, as to how many of those particular patients you find in, you know, through doing PFU counts in their blood or their plasma, these kind of things. So the more phages you have in your cocktail, the more challenging it becomes to figure out whether each of those phages is, is propagating or being, uh, being removed by the body and not, not having any, any kind of impact. So, so there is a good argument for simplifying treatments down as much as you can in order to make the tracking of the, of the therapy more successful. Right. And as a group for the next step of uh, phage, uh, citizen phage, uh, phage bank, uh, what kind of resources are you looking for? And, you know, how, how can like, you know, maybe other collaborations may facilitate this project of yours? Well, so ideally what we, my, my ultimate vision for the citizen phage library is essentially that every country in the world would have its own branch of the, of the citizen phage library, right? So people have local access to uh, to phages when they when they need them, and that there are agreements in place between citizen phage library branches that we can share these phages very quickly across international borders. If you look at some of the kind of supplementary information of a lot of these kind of clinical trials, clinical uses of phages under compassionate use, you notice pretty quickly that the delays required just in the paperwork of importing these things across international boundaries is actually, a, you know, it, it's, it's more significant than it should be uh, for shipping something somewhere. So if you had places that uh, kind of had their own phage banks for local use and then could share them rapidly across international borders with kind of standardized MTAs and these sorts of things, then I think everyone would benefit from that. It also, there's a, a thing called the Nagoya Protocol, which essentially puts limitations rightfully on um, the the use of uh, biological material from one country being used by, by another country to prevent kind of exploitation of the pretty much of the global south. And so if a country has its own uh, citizen phage library, then essentially it can develop its own capacity there and the, all the phages from there will be protected under, under Nagoya. And so when they get shipped across to another one, then essentially you're not, you're not breaching that Nagoya protocol. So currently we cannot, for instance, have citizens from the US or, or various other places send us uh, phage samples for the citizen phage library and process them because there would be that we'd have to have an MTA uh, with, you know, a material transfer agreement with, with every kind of citizen that was agreeing that they would abide by, by Nagoya protocols. So it doesn't really, doesn't scale to, to citizens, but you could definitely have institutes that, that were, that were doing right. that. So, so that's ultimately where we would like, we'd like to collaborate with lots of other labs out there who are interested in kind of hosting a, a citizen phage library and then working with us to kind of integrate all these things. So we have a kind of shared database and resources and, and SOPs and protocols across across the world. That's the that's the dream. Right. Well, that's great. And it's 100% a very exciting project. Uh, cool. Best of luck. And we're definitely excited to hear more about it, you know, in the very near future. Lovely. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today. Talk soon. Okay. That's Dr. Ben Temperton, professor at University of Exeter and founder of the Citizen Phage Library. I'm Stephen Young, and you're listening to the Phage Therapy Today podcast. If you like what you're hearing, follow, subscribe, and give us five stars. If you have stories to share or have any feedbacks, email us at phagetherapytoday at gmail.com. Thanksgiving is coming, and what are you thankful for this year? Well, I want to thank all of you and your love and support for this podcast. 
Thanks for listening and enjoy your Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.